here at this church to be a part of your kingdom, to be um, your witnesses. Um, and Lord, as we continue on through the book of Acts and see what you did with the early church through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, Lord, um, may we be completely reliant and dependent upon that same power of your Holy Spirit that is made available for us today. We know you live in us, Lord, and we, we know that we can't do a work apart from you, uh, a work for your kingdom, that you draw men to you. Lord, nothing that we can do does that. So, Father, um, continue to use us as a church. Give us faith, Lord, to step forward and, and to walk in a, uh, an obedience to your plan and your will uh, for our lives and for this world that you have um, called us to be a light and a witness to. Lord, um, I pray, God, that as we um, take steps of faith and enter into the divine appointments that you set up for us, that people would marvel and that they would come to you and they would know the mighty works, Lord, that you've done uh, for us and that you want to do for them. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, chapter 2. Um, just really quickly, in the first chapter we studied through last week, we read how Luke had begun by historically accounting for us and recalling Jesus' death and resurrection and uh, ascension into heaven. And in doing so, from that starting point, Luke creates a foundation to account for us now what God began to do in and through the lives of the early church, through the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of chapter 1, we were told that Jesus ascended into heaven, and um, the disciples returned to Jerusalem, and there they continued in prayer as they waited together, it says, in one accord, for God's promise of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Remember, that's what they had been instructed to do, that Jesus was going to make them witnesses, send them out, but they weren't to go until this event had happened. And we know that this was a prophesied promise, not only by Jesus Christ when he was here, but also by many of the Old Testament prophets. We read in the book of Joel, book of Malachi, Ezekiel, um, where um, this promise of the outpouring of Holy Spirit were, would, would come upon uh, the followers of Christ in these last days where we um, would have a supernatural power beyond our own to do God's work. But now here in chapter 2, we read of this recorded fulfillment of this promise. And we're told about what took place on the day when the disciples were filled with the power of God. So the event itself and the things that transpired. And, and it's this chapter that is inspired. I want to I state this from the beginning just so that we don't feel tempted we fall temptation to this as individuals or as a church today living at this time. But when you look back through church history, there have been many churches down through church history who have had a desire for God's Spirit to move mightily in their day and in their time. And we've seen that throughout the history of church, just not here at its inception when there was this harvest of 3,000 people and, and where God's church was birthed. But we've seen great moving within the church where people would come and be saved. And, and, and we still desire that today. And um, But I will say this, in this desire to have God move mightily in our day and time, We've also seen churches or individuals try to attempt or duplicate or recreate the mighty and awesome, awesome works that we read about here 
in this chapter by developing some kind of program or some kind of model that the church follows. That if you do A and you do B, then, then, then you're going to get this result. And I believe that in this chapter, there are many things that are exampled for us and examples that can be and should be a model for us to follow. However, the, the example seen in this chapter, please hear this, they need to be received as simple truths. They need to be received as basic principles that would guide us, that we might individually apply to our lives as followers of Christ, but also corporately as a church that we would follow simply because it's the right thing to do. God's Word has accounted it. God's Word details it. And of course, we're called to follow God's Word. And, and as a result, not to take it as a formula for trying to design a program so that we might receive some kind of end result. And furthermore, we need to understand that the disciples were not in the upper room. Please hear this. They weren't up there together strategizing, right, on how they were going to turn the world upside down. And I say that because that's what they were accused of, of turning the world upside down as they preached the name of Jesus. And, and they weren't strategizing in that same way on how are they now going to grow the church? How are they going to be added to daily from this point forward? How are they going to go forth and be the witnesses that God had commissioned them to do? They weren't planning. They weren't strategizing. It was God who grew the church then. Please hear this. And it's God who grows the church today. He adds to the church as he sees fit. And this is what we see in chapter 2 as it records the birth and I would say even the rapid growth of God's church, where in one day, 3,000 would be added. And then later on, we'll read that another time. There's preaching going on, 5,000 would be added. But for this morning, let's look at verses 1 through 13, and let's begin now by reading together. When, verse 1, the day of Pentecost had fully come, it says, they were all with one accord. And we know that this one was the 120 disciples who had, who had followed the command of Jesus to return to Jerusalem and wait. They were in one place it says and suddenly they came down from heaven as of a, a a noise a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting then there appeared to them divided tongues as fire and one sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under the heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then, verse 7, they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. So they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What? Ever could this mean? And yet, verse 13, others, there were others mocking. They said, they are full of new wine. Full of new wine. You know, it's, I've heard people say 
over my years of, of being a pastor and doing ministry, um, as they've talked about the church today, and, and there's this sense of romanticizing what we read here in the book of Acts, where they're like, if we were just like the early church. Well, you know, we are just like the early church, and, and, and in two specific ways. And I don't think we need to re-romanticize something and try to recreate something as we look back as if the early church had it all figured out. They were a basket case. You know what, when you think about, there's like, oh, they, they, they try to present it as this perfect thing, and then you read all the letters from the Apostle Paul and the other apostles here in the New Testament, and we look at these other letters, and we see that these guys had some serious problems. Just like here in the church today, the Bride of Christ has some problems. There was false teaching going on. There was, the people were divisive and complaining and not getting along, and and there were, 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 were men who were dressed up as, as sheep, but there were actually wolves coming in. And there was these warnings to look out for them. And there was rebu rebuke and correction and, and instruction in righteousness that was taking place. And, 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 and just like there were problems in the early church then, there's problems now within the church. So that's, that's not new. Um, but I also see people in the romanticizing of what they read here going, why can't it just be like it was then with this outpouring of God's Spirit? And I'm here to tell you this morning that, that for us today, this same power that we read about here, the same moving of God's Spirit, perhaps that we desire in our own lives or to be a part of corporately as God moves through our community and into places where we go, we go, I don't know if God could reach that. And God goes into that and he does a mighty work and changes people's lives in places and in ways that we never could hope for or imagine. God does exceedingly more and abundantly than we could imagine or hope for. And we go, we want to be a part of that. We want to see God's moving. And that is available to us today as well. It's not something that's concealed. It's not something that's only been a thing of a past. But what we're going to see as we look at this, the thing to maybe if we want to romanticize or, or uh, idolize in the sense that we would like to be, have that going on, we have to see that it, 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 two things are key as we look at the principles, and we're going to talk about that, is number one is, is, is we got to have faith. we got to have faith. we got to walk in faith. And then here's the other thing. We have to be submitted. We have to be willing, we're going to talk about this, to do what God has called us to do, what he's put before us. There's no other hindrances in this place. And I believe that God wants to do the same great works that we read about in the book of Acts and here today. I believe that today. And I've been a part of some really cool things, and perhaps you have in your own life as well. But I'm, I'm anticipating as we go through this book and study it together, I'm anticipating that we together as a church are going to see a supernatural moving, not only in our church, but in our community through the work that God wants to do in and through our lives. So may we be faithful, may we be submitted, and receive all that God has for us. And as we read here in this first four verses, listen, just as God had promised the disciples that they were filled with the supernatural through power of the, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just like God had promised that then, God promises that to us today. And, and, and right away we see how this power was used by the disciples, it was used by them for the purpose, for the means of being witnesses of Jesus as they began to do what God commissioned them to do. I'm going to stop because I believe that, I believe we're living in such a time right now that we will even see a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our day, in our time, in these last days than we have seen ever down through the history of the church, whether it was here with its inception or these other 
great movements of the Holy Spirit that we've seen when you look back on the history of the church. And the reason I believe that is I believe that time is short. I believe that Jesus is coming soon. And I believe that God's will is that none would perish and that there will be this great, mighty outpouring of his Holy Spirit so that he can bring into his home those whom he has predestined, those who he set aside, those he sees calling unto life. And I believe that we're going to see this in ways that we, we, we go, how did God do that? And I want to be a part of it. So let's live expectantly for that. But we see this, and like I mentioned last week, the same power of the Holy Spirit is, is, is available to us. And it is needed by us in order for, for us to be God's witnesses. It's needed and available. And we should understand that the disciples did nothing. As we think about this now, let's put it into the proper understanding. The disciples did nothing to earn here by what I read in this account or any other account to earn or somehow conjure up or work up this outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon them. As a matter of fact, we see it was freely given as a result of a promise, a gift from God, just like the salvation of God is also given as a free gift to us. We know that it's come to us through Jesus' death on the cross, His work, a gift of God. So in regards to this supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit, please hear this, you, we can't earn it. We can't purchase it with any kind of money or, 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 or gift of our time or, or a, a, of some kind of act of holiness or good work. We don't, we don't earn it in that way. We don't have to, here's the other thing, do ri ridiculous things to get God's Spirit to somehow fall upon us. Likewise, we don't need to go to certain geographical locations to obtain it because in the recent church history, not too many years ago, and, and in other times that I've seen, it's just like, there's been a moving of God's Spirit, and if you want this gift of the Holy Spirit and the power that comes along with it, you have to go there to get it. That's nonsense. That's completely unbiblical. And I want us to understand that the Bible clearly teaches us that the filling of the Holy Spirit is given by God, and it's the giving of it and the receiving of it is solely based upon us wanting it, us asking for it, asking for for. for, for for God to fill us, to be overflowing with, with that supernatural power and the gifts that come along with that. And in these first four verses, this is exactly what we're told had happened to the disciples who were, notice, they were obediently and eagerly waiting on a day called Pentecost. Now, they didn't know the day. They didn't know it would all come to pass on this one particular day. But Luke, Luke points it out as, a, as being, being connected. And so let's look at this because begin, Luke begins, we see that he's intentional. He's intentional to point out that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and these events that happen on this day, he says that they were a fulfillment of an annual feast. The feast, a feast that the Jews had celebrated for years since the giving of the law. Notice in verse 1 it says that when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And don't, don't miss what's being said here because what this literally means is that when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, that's when the Holy Spirit came. And the promise of the Holy Spirit and the birth or the harvest of these people on this day, the birth of the church, is what Luke is pointing to as this fulfillment of this God-appointed Jewish feast that was held yearly on this day. And when we look back to the Old Testament and see what this annual 
feast was about, see that it was celebrated as, as primarily a, a celebration of the harvest, right? This was an agrarian culture. And when harvest came, that was a great day, a great time. And this feast coincided with it as a time of celebration, right? And we understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and the, the birth of God's church that came as a result of it is what are prophetically pictured in this Jewish feast that was held 50 days after the Passover. That was the instruction, to celebrate it 50 days after the Passover or exactly seven weeks after the Feast of the First Fruits. And I, I mention all these things because these feasts are, are significantly tied together. And I'm, these other two feasts, Passover and First Fruits, because here's what we know. We know that the Passover, looking back on it through the lens of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of all of the law, even all of the feasts that were commanded in the law, we know that the Passover was prophetically symbolic of Jesus, who is the true Lamb of God, right? On Passover, they would take a lamb, and they would sacrifice it, and they would take the blood, and it remembered them of the day where God passed over when they were in Egypt, right? And it was a covering from the angel of death. And we know that Jesus is the true Lamb of God, that, that, the, that, that through his death, that Passover was ultimately fulfilled because Jesus became our propitiation. He, he, he made the payment through his blood sacrifice by his death on the cross. So we see the prophetic symbolism and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in the Passover. Likewise, this feast of first fruits, which was held on the next day, was prophetically symbolic of Jesus, who is the risen Savior. And the fulfillment of the feast of first fruits is seen in the resurrection as Jesus Christ, we're told that his resurrection from the grave is the first of many who will come. And that feast of first fruits is when you would bring the first of your harvest and you would offer it up to God, the best of your harvest. And Jesus was the first. Jesus is the best. But he is the fulfillment of many to come through our faith in him. And so when we consider the feast of weeks, this third feast in the order of events, 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, which is its Greek reference, we should look back to the Old Testament, to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 16 through 22, to see the prophetic symbolism that points forward in this account. And in this passage of Leviticus, we're told that it was a holy day, first of all, a day of holy convocation, a day of coming together and celebrating. And it was one of four feasts that were commanded to be held or celebrated in Jerusalem. And that's why we see here so many people coming from all over the Roman Empire, Jews and proselytes alike, to worship, to make sacrifices, to make offerings, to celebrate. And, and the, the, when we read in Leviticus, about this and the details that God commanded surrounding it, what we know is that in addition to specific animal sacrifices, you can go and read about them, the people were also to do this very unusual thing in regards to offering a sacrifice to God. That they were to bring two loaves of bread that were made from the wheat of that harvest of that year. And they were to bake this bread. And, and, and that in itself wasn't odd or different, but this bread unlike all other bread that was offered as a sacrifice to God, this bread had leaven in it, yeast. 
where God commanded them to, 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 to bring bread that had leaven. And we know that in Scripture, leaven is always a picture of sin. And that would be a weird thing to bring a, 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 an offering of, that had something mixed with this symbolism of sin before God who's holy and pure. And it was to be a wave offering. It was to be waved openly in front as an act of worship. And this is where we see the spiritual picture. And here's the reason why. is because the Hebrew people, in regards to this event, they referred to it also in the Hebrew as the Hag Matan Torah and Teneu, which means this, the festival of the giving of our Torah, the festival of the giving of the law. And according to Jewish tradition, this feast was a reminder and an illustration of what was. Looking back to the day when God gave Israel the law out Mount Sinai. And, and these two loaves of baked bread, in light of that, were a representation. Looking back, they were a representation of the laws of God that had been given to Moses. Right, Two stone tablets. Two loaves of bread as a wave offering. Yet we know when we consider that event and on that day from Exodus chapter 32, verse 38, that on that day when Moses returned, when he came down from the top of Mount Sinai with the two stone tablets that contained God's law, we're told that 3,000 people died on that day because they were set on doing evil and they were worshiping a golden calf, a false god. And yet the death of these 3,000 was fitting. It was a fitting beginning as we look back upon this with the giving of the law because we know as we've been studying through the book of Galatians that, that, uh, that the law of Moses was a law of spiritual death. Why? Because nobody could keep the law. It was a law of spiritual death. However, this feast and the fulfillment of it on the day of Pentecost that Luke has recorded here for us as the day of fulfillment is also an illustration of what was to come. He's looking at this feast and he says this day was a fulfillment of what was to come. It had always been prophesied by God, predicted by God. In that, the loaves of bread that illustrated God's law were also to be made with yeast, like I said, which is a picture of sin, leaven. And like I said, it's an odd thing to bring this as an offering before God. But looking forward, looking forward to what God would do through Jesus, the fulfillment of all things, right? And, 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 and the outpouring, the promise of the outpouring of Spirit, we see in this spiritual representation that the yeast in the bread is giving us a picture of the sin that would exist within the church, the bride of Christ. Meaning the church, which was birthed on the day of Pentecost, would be made up of sinners saved by grace. And we know we're called to be these living sacrifices before God. And as we read on, it's not in this text that we're reading now, but as we read on, I've already mentioned it, and it's a phenomenal thing to think about as God orchestrates everything from the beginning to the end is that on this day of Pentecost, because of God's grace coming to man, despite our sin, 3,000 people were harvested on this day. 
harvested unto salvation with the birth of the church after hearing Peter preach Jesus to be the Messiah. And I believe, I think, without beyond a shadow of a doubt, this illustrates for us how the, how the law of Jesus, right? What's the law of Jesus? Love. Love God, love others. That this law of love, this law of grace is a law of life. It's a law of life because it provides forgiveness of our sins. One, a law of death. The other, the law of life. And in light of this, we all see, I think, in light of this, we all see how Pentecost and the fulfilling of it was the beginning of what we refer to as a new age. Some would even say a dispensation. And, 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 and it's what we would refer to as this church age. It began on the day of Pentecost. And it has continued into the time that we're now living in. We're still a part of it today. That's the exciting thing. And this is a time that God, through, through His Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, is a time that God has set aside for mankind, which is made up of sinners, to be set free from the law which brings death. And for us to come into this relationship, this personal and intimate relationship with Him through the death of His Son and receive salvation through grace and not through the keeping of the law and so with this foundation with this statement we see here that that with they were all gathered together in one accord simply waiting waiting for the promise of being filled with the holy spirit and as luke describes this account look in verse two he tells us the disciples as we look at the order of events that take took place here and i think they're significant to to account the order he says here that they first heard right with their ears what sounded like a mighty rushing wind a noise from heaven and with their eyes they saw, they heard, and then they saw what appeared to be to them like these tongues or flames of fire, this lick, this light flickering above their heads. And then in verse 4, we told that after these things took place, this is when they began to speak. As the Spirit gave them utterance, languages and tongues that were not their own. As we consider how this transpired, as I consider how this has transpired, hopefully you see it too, I believe there's an example for us to be seen because this is exactly, I believe, how it works in the life of a believer today when God does a work, when there's a moving of a Holy Spirit in us and through us. Meaning just like the first disciples, just like they heard and then they saw and then they spoke. I think this is the process in which we go through in our own work, our relationship with God. In other words, hear this. We first, too, must hear from God. I think that's, all, that's, a, that's an ongoing prayer of God's kids. Whether it's in a time of rejoicing or a time of need, a time of sorrow, a time of grief, a time of uncertainty. And we're like, God, I want to hear from you. I want to know from you. That's the reason we pray God, answer our prayers. We want to hear. There's a reason we read God's word. God, speak to me. Let me know your will. Let me know your plan for my life. What do you want me to do? What is my future in you? And so we hear. We hear. Because God speaks to us, and he says things, and he, he promises things. And then we look, right? Then we see. We look, and then we see the, the manifestation of the things that, that God makes known. And it's when we see, guys, is it not that we're moved to speak? We're like, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you what I've experienced. And the scripture teaches us that the word of God, please hear this as I connect these dots, the word of God always precedes the work of God. 
The word of God always proceeds a work of God, the work of God. So God calls us to hear his voice and then to believe in what he has said by acting on what he has told us, on what he's made known to us. In the light of this, we see how believing in God is an action, right? Faith is actionable. We're to be moved into action. It's not just a feeling. Believing in God is just not a feeling. And God says to us, listen to my voice, follow the order, listen to my voice, and believe, and then you will see. And yet, I point that out because I believe beyond a shadow of doubt we're all the same way, that by nature we expect it to be the other way around, right? Reverse the order. Let me see, and then I'll believe, and then I'll listen. But that's completely opposite of the way that God has done it here and the way that God does it today. Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that right, we walk by faith, not by sight. And at the same time, the Apostle Paul followed this line in Hebrews chapter 11. He reminds us that our faith is not a blind faith. Get that imagery. It's like blind people going around. Even though we walk by faith and not by sight, we're not called to be blind as we move forward. He says, he says, he reminds us that our faith is not a blind faith, and he goes on to say that God will prove himself to be faithful to us, saying that our faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen, meaning God will make good. Here, this, this is the simplistic breakdown of it. God will make good on what he has spoken to us. You can count on it. If God's spoken something to you, if you asked and you heard his voice, you can trust that he will follow through with it. God has spoken. What God has spoken, he'll make good on. But first, guys, here's the, here's the, 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 the bridge that gaps that. We've got to believe. Actionable. We must take action on what he has said in order to see the evidence. Furthermore, it's his faithfulness that increases our faith meaning when god speaks it we do it it bears the result that god said that it would and as a result of that we go you're trustworthy look what you said what you would do you did and it's his faithfulness to us that increases our faith a perfect example of this i always want to go to scripture to give an example but I think there's no better example of this in Scripture than when the children of Israel were brought into the Promised Land, right? When they were crossed over the Jordan River. Remember, this wasn't the first time they had brought the, been brought to the Jordan River, to the border of the Promised Land. The first generation that was there, the one before them, they didn't enter in. So they did not enter into God's rest. They did not see all that God had for them, that God had promised for them because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. And that generation perished, it says in the wilderness. But this other generation, now under the command and the leadership of Joshua, they are brought to the border of the promised land, to the, to the, the edge of the Jordan River. And we're told that when God commanded them to enter in, it was during springtime. It was at a time when the Jordan River was at its highest levels, flood level stage, unsafe to, to try to go across. And yet God told them, he promised them that they would go across on dry land. They would walk across the river. 
But God also told them this. He told them that when the priest who went before them would go, that they were to take a step. They were to take a step into the river. They were to put that foot into the water. And then when they took that faith-based action of stepping into the water, that then the waters would be held up. A step of faith based upon what God said. And, 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 and that's when they would walk across. So God spoke. They heard. We see that they believe. We read that they believed. Why do we know that? Because they stepped in, into the water. And then God did what he promised to do. And their faith in him was increased. In turn, it's similar. It's the same for us. God's faithfulness that moves us to speak. When it's all done, when it's all said, when we've experienced God in these ways, we're then moved to speak of the things of God as the Spirit gives us an utterance. And because of God's faithfulness, guys, we have reasons to sing God's praises. We have reasons to proclaim the wonderful works of God that we've been partakers of. And so in verse 5, we read on and it says, continuing in their dwelling in Jerusalem, right, Jews, devout men from every, under every every nation under heaven. And it says, and when the sound occurred, the multitude, those who were gathered there, not the disciples who were in the upper room, but they gathered, they heard the noise, and they were amazed, and they marveled, because in verse 11, not only of, of them hearing them speak in their own tongues, but the things that they were hearing, the wonderful works of God. And we're not told what this is, but we know that these were devout followers of Jesus. These 120 weren't just the apostles, but they also followed Jesus wherever he had gone. They were firsthand witnesses of the miracles that Jesus performed. Perhaps these people were there when the the loaves and the fishes were used to feed many, when Jesus raised Lazarus up from the grave, when he healed the blind man and the leper, the wonderful teachings of Christ. These were the things that they were speaking. They were their experiences of the wonderful works of God. And Scripture tells us that it's the Spirit of God that draws the heart of a man into truth and into saving relationship with Jesus. And I think in this text, in these last verses here, on through 13, we see a picture of this. Let's see it. The crowd who gathered Jerusalem from this feast, they were from all over the Roman Empire. And now they were gathering outside of the building where the 120 had been waiting. And, in, and Luke tells us in verse 6, right? They came also because they heard the same sound. The sound like a mighty rushing wind. They, they said, it came down from heaven. I don't know what that's like. But it was unnatural. That's what we see. It was odd. People are going, what is that? In light of this, I think it's right to point out that when um, the people around us, think about this, when the people around us hear, when they hear of the power of the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit that has come down from heaven, working in and through our lives, they're also going to be drawn to see what God is doing. Because it's life. It's hope. Something that's not of this world apart from God. And when the crowd reached the place where this noise from heaven had come, they were amazed by the supernatural things that they were seeing and hearing. Why? Because these people were speaking in these languages of all the different people groups were there, and they understood what they were saying. And as you can imagine, this would produce a whole range of emotions and thoughts. 
As we're told, some were amazed, and their amazement sought them to investigate further. What's going on here? How can I be a part of this? And yet there were others, according to verse 13, right? They mocked. They sought to dismiss these supernatural things of God, just like it does today, by concluding that, that these men, these followers of Jesus Christ, they were drunk. And in my experience, when I've, when I've experienced or have been used by God in supernatural ways, these are the exact same kind of responses that, that people will respond with today. And we can expect it. That when we are filled with and living in the power of the Holy Spirit, people respond this way. Meaning most people around us will either be amazed by what they see and hear and um, want to investigate the things of God, or they'll mock and they'll seek to dismiss the work of God that they have seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples that the power they would receive from the Holy Spirit would enable them to be witnesses for him. And I think that we should conclude that this same power of the Holy Spirit that we receive is primarily for the same purpose, so that we can be witnesses of Jesus. And this power is manifested in us, and it's manifested through us as we're given supernatural gifts, is what the Bible teaches us, that equips us, enables us to be these witnesses. And when we read this account, there was this gift, this gift that was given to the disciples of the day of Pentecost, it can be, and probably rightly should be, categorized as the gift of tongues. And in this event, in the context of this event, we see in it one of the very purposes for why the gift of tongues is given to us. As we're told in verse 11, that each man heard in their own language, but they heard the disciples speaking about the wonderful works of God. Let me break it down simply. In other words, the gift of tongues is primarily being used to serve the purpose of praising and glorifying God. But as we read in 1 Corinthians and Galatians about the supernatural gifts, because there's some lists of these gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts that we should ask for, gifts that we should expect to equip us, enable us to do the work that God wants to do in us and through us. And these lists come with the power we receive from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, we understand that there are many other types of gifts, not just tongues. There's the gift of prophecy. I'm going to go through a few of them for you. And this isn't the exhaustive list. There's more found in Scripture. But this is the core of it. There's the gift of prophecy. Again, all for the purpose of being witnesses and glorifying God. That the attention is then put on Him so that people come to know Him. The gift of helps, the gift of giving, the gift of administration, teaching, miracles, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, the gift of healings, encouragement. That one's probably my favorite. I love it when people encourage me. Don't you love to be encouraged? That's such a powerful thing. The gift of discernment, another good gift to ask for and desire, the gift of faith. And of course, the greatest of all of these gifts in both of these lists is the gift of love that agape love, the love of God that we receive and, and share with others. And I would pray, I would pray for us as God's people who make up the church, this church, and the church as a whole, that we would ask God to give us these gifts 
We wouldn't be afraid of them or intimidated by them, by what we maybe have seen as they may have been used wrongly or, or uncertain of what it looks like, practically speaking, but that we would ask that God would give us these gifts and then we would seek to use all of these gifts in accordance to God's will as defined and outlined in God's word. And as we begin to wrap things up this morning, there are two last points that I believe I should make in light of what we've just talked about as we conclude. The first is this. Please hear this. In regards to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes and tells us that we are to use these gifts, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, we're to use them in a godly manner, in a way that brings honor and glory to God in a way that God has said they should be and must be used. And so when we hear that, we must assume that there is a way to use them in an ungodly manner, right? And I think we've probably all borne witness to that at some point or another. But he says in 1 Corinthians, and, and I'm a firm believer that if you don't start with the simplicity of God's word, that you're never going to end up in the right place. And so I will, I will concede that where I'm going with this may be coming, a little, coming across a little simplistic, but this is where we got to start. I've always been taught, I've always been told, teach God's word simply and simply teach God's word. That's a pretty good motto, I think. And so when we're talking about this, in 1 Corinthians 14.40, it says this, in regards to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, specifically in that context, it says, let, let all things be done decently and in order. That's the admonition. Yet, when it comes to the use of the gifts, there are some who are only willing to apply half of this verse. There are whole denominations of church that have been surrounded upon the division of this one piece of Scripture. Meaning that there are churches who only teach and apply the first part of the verse and say, let all things be done. I've been to a few of those churches, and they do. They let all things be done. But in doing so, they leave out the second part of this verse where it says, in, with decency or decently and in order. And, and the Apostle Paul says it, not me. He says, when unbelievers see this, they will conclude that you are crazy, that you're out of your mind. They're going to want nothing to do with that. It's not a good testimony. It's not a good witness because it shows people or reveals to people this very thing and more that our God is a God who's out of control, that our God is not a God of order. And that's not true. However, on a whole other side of the spectrum, there are other churches who only apply the second half of the verse, right? The decent and, and order part. And I did this at the first service, so I'll do it here. The decent and orderly part, right? And they ignore, they ignore in seeking to be decent and in order the let all things be done. Let all things be done. And sadly, what we see is that they quench the very life of God. They quench the moving and the empowering of God's Spirit. And not that we have the corner on the market, but here, here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel, we believe that this whole verse is what guides us in relationship to the gift of the Holy Spirit and that it needs to be applied to our lives. Guys, we've got to apply both. 
And we, we all come from different places and different understandings and maybe even different religious backgrounds and things that we've been taught. But we need to be guided by the whole counsel of God's Word. And if this is new for you today, I would challenge you in this way, whether, whether you're on one side or the other side. Let all things be done decently in order. How many things? All things. For how long? Through this whole age that God has appointed for salvation by grace through faith to be empowered and indwelt with by the Holy Spirit. And hopefully we're not causing people to think that we're out of our minds and hopefully we're not quenching the moving of the Holy Spirit as we let all things be done decently and in order. Now the second point, I know the first one was a little longer than this one. This one will be shorter. The second point that needs to be made, Debbie, if you and worship team who are here left want to come up. The second point that needs to be made, and this is so sad because I know people, I even talked to someone afterwards after church, and again, it's just this, it's this hard, hard place that a lot of people doctrinally have gone that God's word does not go to. And I want to make it clear today that just because you don't speak in tongues or possess any other of these gifts of the Holy Spirit, it does not mean that you're not saved. I've seen and heard stories where people have been in fellowship together with one another as believers in Christ and doing work together and, 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 and then they've been cast away because they don't have one or any of these gifts manifested in their life. And they go, the conclusion is, is you must not be a believer. And God's word is clear when it comes to this issue by teaching us that, that the gifts are not intended to be evidences of our salvation. There are evidences of salvation that we should look for and look towards and seek to have in our lives. And one of the basic ways to discern this is that we know that, that it's the fruit that tells us what kind of tree a tree is, right? We know that an apple tree is an apple tree because it bears apples, fruit. And so we should look to fruit. What does the Bible say about fruit being evidence of what kind of tree we are? And as believers, it's not the gifts, but it's the fruit. Not the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is that is an evidence of being indwelt with God's Holy Spirit, being come new creations. And by the way that I read it, the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I would pray that for us here today, as we seek to experience and be a part of God's moving here in our generation, in our day, in our church, in our community, that we would seek both. We would seek the fruit of the Spirit. We'd tap into that, that we would live according to the Spirit. We'd walk according to the Spirit, putting to death the deeds and desires of our flesh, but then again calling upon the power of the Holy Spirit, asking with boldness and expectation for God to reveal Himself to the world around us, through us in these ways. And Father, as we come to You and close this morning, we, we confess and proclaim that you're a good father and you don't give any bad gifts. And I pray, God, that we would be 
empowered in ways that we never have been or in ways that we couldn't even hope for or imagine in supernatural ways, Father, that, we would, that our minds would be blown as you use us in this way and that people around us, that they would be amazed, Father, as well. And that as we hear and see and ask, Lord, and believe, then that we would have the opportunity to tell people around us of the mighty works that you've done. And that the way that we've experienced you and the way that we've come to know you, that they can as well, Father. That you would set up divine appointments for this outpouring to be manifested. And Father, that we'd look, we'd look forward to it. God, we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.